You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This week, I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast is some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Romain Bostic, Taylor Riggs, and Joe Weisenthal. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. We started the week with a market outlook from Mona Mahajan, U.S. investment strategist at Allianz Global Investors. We talked with Mona about whether the massive outperformance we've seen from tech stocks is justified and why she is expecting August to bring more risks. We started by asking her what if she was set up for further volatility. Yeah, you know, look, historically, as you just mentioned, there tends to be volatility in the months of August and September. These are not typically kind months to the markets. This year, of course, we are also uh, in a presidential election cycle. And when you look historically at presidential election cycles, in fact, the six weeks leading up to Election Day on November 3rd do tend to have volatility, uncertainty. And in fact, it's interesting to note, though, after Election Day, November 3rd through year end, historically does tend to do better. You know, you, you typically get that relief rally regardless of which party wins. And so it could be an interesting time. You know, you could have some tactical opportunities leading up to Election Day and perhaps a stronger year end. Also, this year may be punctuated by a vaccine or or a medical breakthrough as well. I mean, this is also a year, Mona. I mean, you talk about the election. Obviously, you talk about the vaccine. We're still technically in a recession or at least an economic downturn here. Considering that equities are at or near record highs right now, at least on the two main indices that we keep an eye on, the Nasdaq and the S&P 500, does that maybe give the potential for a little bit of a pause here for investors for pretty much the rest of the year? Because you got August, September, October, you go into an election in November, and even once you get the election results, there could be some time here to figure out uh, what changes in policy, if any, might actually occur in the U.S.? Yeah, you know, look, it's a great point. I think generally investors are looking at um, what can lead the market higher. Thus far, we've seen really this pandemic playbook that's led markets. It's been technology, gold, you know, softer treasury bonds generally that's been leading the market higher. Um, In order for that to really fundamentally shift, you would have to see some sort of shift in fundamentals ahead of elections Uh, in order to get some traction. And perhaps that comes from not only the vaccine, but maybe better virus trends, which lead to better mobility and economic data. We also, of course, are awaiting another fiscal stimulus package that could put money back in the hands of the consumer. Um, But generally, if we do start to feel that that tech and gold trade gets a little fatigue here, 
um, and the cyclicals cannot be supported by a change in fundamentals, could get some sideways movement, some periods of consolidation uh, ahead of that election period. Where do you think we are in terms of panic on the downside and euphoria on the right side with record highs? Are we too euphoric or does this feel appropriately priced at this point, given earnings generally have been pretty good? Yeah, you know, look, I think a lot of eyes were on last Thursday's earnings report. Four of the big cap tech names reported. All four of them cleared the hurdles very nicely. Uh, revenues and earnings beat to the upside. Revenues on average 9 to 10% beat. Earnings on average, if you exclude the Amazon, tremendous beat was up 25% to the upside. Um, interestingly, the stocks, you know, didn't move accordingly because they had probably already moved uh, nearly 55% since that March 23rd low. But I do think that that earnings report day on Thursday did partly justify what we've been seeing. Uh, these technology names have benefited from a more stay-at-home economy, a more digital economy that relies on their services even more. And so uh, to some extent, you know, the markets were, were quite astute in calling this early. Let's spin that technology focus forward and look at the rising tensions between the U.S. and China when it comes to technology, the barriers that are being formed between U.S. and Chinese technology transfer. In particular, when we look at Microsoft potentially getting in on TikTok, what are the ramifications of this, Mona? Does it change your view on investing in technology and indeed the geopolitical terms of trade? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. It just kind of makes mega tap, cap tech even more mega in many ways. Um, for an example, Microsoft getting involved in TikTok now also brings to them a social media presence they didn't have once before. And, you know, it probably complements both their LinkedIn business as well as their Xbox business, which tends to be catered to that same younger audience. Um, from a U.S.-China perspective, clearly tensions have escalated in the last few months, particularly after the pandemic period, also exacerbated by China's moves in Hong Kong. And, you know, there tends to be a little bit of skepticism and uncertainty. Uh, the administration had uh, noted that TikTok perhaps is sending user data back to the CCC, CCP in China. And so I think there is a little bit of still um, uncertainty, resentment coming out of the, the administration towards China. That rhetoric will likely continue to escalate as we head towards election season. What we'll, we'll be watching for more, though, are there any more material you know, economically uh, significant moves that come out of the U.S. Thus far, it's been a lot of rhetoric, but we haven't yet seen any escalation in tariffs, for example, uh, any real moves to remove the, the Chinese-listed ADRs in the U.S. as well. So two things to keep in mind as we head towards that election period. Yeah, I mean, a lot of talk about tech here, Mona. I mean, it's a big tech market. It's a big tech economy. I guess, does that concern you at all with regards to uh, how you position yourself and really as how you plan uh, for the future of the economic recovery and any sort of uh, potential gains from here uh, in the market? Yeah. Uh, you know, generally speaking, when we think about uh, the S&P longer term, you know, we do think in order to, for the S&P index and U.S. equities broadly to have a sustainable rally, we do need to broaden this participation. You know, it cannot just be five, six, even seven stocks leading the way. We do have to see participation from those laggards, really the cyclical sectors uh, that have not yet really seen a meaningful participation. You know, we, we get um, head fakes like we did in mid-May to mid-June when we did see a cyclical rally as the reopening momentum really picked up. 
Uh, but in order to get a sustained rally, and historically, you know, value outperformance does come in periods of six, nine, even 12 months. For that to happen, we have to see a broadening in participation, which, like we said earlier, will probably happen when we get the fundamentals changing, when we do get a real reopening of the U.S. economy, uh, probably led by virus trends broadly, yeah. uh, stimulus ongoing, and uh, vaccination, uh, full, full all-encompassing solution there. We also spoke with Tiffany Wilding, PIMCO's U.S. economist, ahead of Jobs Day to get her outlook and reaction to this week's jobless claims. Tiffany explained why the V-shaped recovery we saw back in April and May won't last and why we should be bracing ourselves for a painful August jobs report. Well, I think I think there are a wide array of indicators that we look at. Um, the conclusion that we draw is that uh, job momentum slowed and slowed quite notably in July. So we got, um, I think we got um, uh, 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 4.8 uh, million job gains uh, in June. We think that slows to closer to a million. Um, and, yet, and you have to be a little bit careful because there's some seasonal quirks um, in, in, the, in the data around education payrolls, you know, just because teachers that get laid off and stuff like that. So we really think the private payroll number is what you should be looking at. Um, and that number, uh, you know, that number could slow, uh, you know, to something like 500, uh, 500,000. So it's a notable slowing, I think. But, you know, overall, um, on the claims data, the continuing claims data that you mentioned, they did tick lower. But I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, we, we still have 15 million people that are on the regular state unemployment programs. That's quite a lot. And if you look at the various extensions in unemployment programs that we got through the CARES Act, and include those, it's around 30 million people that are still receiving some sort of unemployment insurance benefit. So it's still quite dramatically high, uh, you know, even though there might have been some incremental improvement uh, in this week's number. And so, Tiffany, I mean, there's already been some data showing the economic impact that the CARES uh, Act and, and some of the other uh, government programs have had in keeping the economy afloat and, more importantly, maintaining some semblance of labor market strength. If there is a considerable lapse uh, between the current program and whatever new program ends up getting worked out in Congress, does that then have a potentially meaningful effect on the economic data that we're going to see over the next couple of months? Yeah, it absolutely does. So, um, you know, I think it's not if there's going to be a lapse. I think it, it, there is going to be a lapse, as we know. Um, so the unemployment insurance benefit booster, what we call booster from the federal government, um, which is emergency unemployment benefit that you get over and above your regular state programs, that actually expired at the end of July. So we know that that's already lapsed. So that was about $600 a week. You know, and I mentioned about 31 million people were receiving that benefit um, if you look across all of the programs. So that's actually quite a big number, uh, you know, kind of when you look at it relative to uh, relative to spending or things like that. So we actually think that, you know, if, you know, if we get some sort of legislation passed that, ex you know, further extends the, you know, the unemployment insurance benefits, you're still going to kind of have that lapse in August. That's going to weigh on the August data, which we'll receive in September, uh, you know, right ahead of the election, as well as right ahead of the Fed meeting. So I think the data could actually look pretty bad in August, uh, the spending data and things like that, as a result of, of this lapse. 
you know, I think you have to keep in mind that although we've had a pretty notable what looks to be kind of a V-shaped recovery in the economy over uh, at April and May, a lot of that, as you mentioned, resulted from stimulus, a boost uh, from stimulus payments. The economy is still very fragile, and I think we're going to see that play out in August, you know, as you kind of get this temporary, hopefully temporary removal of, of stimulus payments and, and things start to uh, start to really decline. How important It's going to really underscore how important the continuing government support is to economic recovery. Tiffany, what is your analysis showing you about where that extra $600 a week is going? Are people saving it or spending it? Well, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, so clearly in the what we call the government, you know, the government official data, the savings rate that the Commerce Department calculates um, has, has been very elevated. And that tends to happen after any crisis, though. Savings rates tend to go up because... You know, there's a higher number of unemployed people want to save. They want to try to, um, you know, uh, you know, increase their discretionary savings for a kind of rainy day, these rainy day outcomes. You know, but I think in addition to that, though, we did see a lot of spending. And, and in particular, um, when we look at like high frequency measures of data um, and you can look at them by levels of income, what we found was that the decline, the overall decline in spending that we've seen since February has actually been the most pronounced in, um, in, in people that have higher income levels. And the reason is, is because lower income level, level folks, although they lost their jobs at a higher pace, they've been the ones that have really been, have seen the benefit and the target of these uh, unemployment uh, benefit programs from the federal government and from elsewhere. So they've actually had a lot of income replacement. That's been really good news for them. Um, and as a result, we haven't seen their spending decline by as much. So again, I would say this is evidence that the, um, you know, the, the current programs that we're seeing from Congress, they are working and they are helping to, to get us to a recovery, I think, faster than we otherwise would have. Talk to us a little bit about, there was breaking news earlier that we saw mortgage rates in the U.S. plunge to a record low. And I'm interested in the, sort of the defying of gravity that the housing market has been doing here in the United States. Will that be sustained, Tiffany, and how much will that help the rest of the U.S. economy, if at all? Yeah, no, I think it, I think it is a very important, um, it is a very important sector. Um, so, so, you know, when, when we think about why it's, it's, it's um, doing what it is, I mean, I think the one of the reasons why it has been stronger um, is because interest rates are so low. Um, and again, this is a testament to, um, you know, the fact that the Federal Reserve moved very quickly in, um, in its programs. We saw massive dislocations in the agency mortgage market as well as the Treasury market in mid-March. But the Federal Reserve has been buying Treasury securities as well as those agency mortgage securities, and that has reduced those interest rates quite a bit. Um, so we're seeing, um, you know, I think a boost in housing activity as a result of low interest rates. You know, in addition to that, the housing market actually came into this crisis in a pretty strong position. Uh, you know, unlike the 2008 financial crisis, for example, where we had really high inventories of available housing, inventories were actually quite scarce uh, coming into this crisis already. You know, so I think the combination of, you know, a pretty strong initial condition and the addition of, of very low interest rates is really helping boost the housing market. And that's not the only thing that it's helping to boost, actually. Um, you're also seeing pretty decent, uh, you know, solid gains in purchases of automobiles. Uh, and, and vehicles. And again, I think that is that uh, being helped by the fact that we have low interest rates 
um, and these things are, are just more affordable. So in terms of the overall economic benefit, you know, um, housing, you know, only contributes kind of 0.2 to 0.3 to GDP. So when you have a, a 35% contraction in GDP, of course, yeah. it's not going to offset that. But overall, it you know it, it is a help, and 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 again, I think that's why Federal Reserve officials, when they get together in September, will want to keep these financial conditions easy, want to keep rates low, to to continue that support. On Wednesday, Sonos reported third quarter earnings posting a worse than expected loss, but the audio product maker did have a bright spot in the results, boosting its fourth quarter and full year revenue guidance. We got reaction from Sonos CEO Patrick Spence, who told us that he is confident of the company's supply chain shift and expects his IP case against Google will go as planned. We started by asking Patrick about his message to investors, whether he watches the ebbs and flows in the share price. I do not. It was, you know, I think really the story of Q3 uh, was adaptability and resilience by the team. You know, if I take you back to March, April, you know, we were facing a situation where all of our physical retailers were closing, uh, which is a huge proportion of our sales. Um, we quickly adapted. Um, we um, really have been investing and put ourselves in a position with our direct-to-consumer efforts uh, to really recapture a lot of the sales that um, we were concerned about as we headed into the quarter uh, and do 300% year-over-year growth in our direct-to-consumer. Um, we've seen listening hours up 40% year-over-year. Um, so I am so proud uh, of the way the team responded and the fact we were able to beat expectations both on top line and bottom line. What might have been missing, I heard in the setup, is that adjusted for one-time one-time uh, expenses, we actually were ahead of expectations on bottom line as well. And as uh, you mentioned, we uh, have given guidance ahead of expectations. So, you know, we are in an excellent position. I think if we can, you know, weather a storm like this that we've been feeling right now, it just gives me even more confidence that we're in a position to continue to be successful over the long term. But with regards to demand here, uh, Patrick, uh, with a lot of consumer product comp products companies that have sold a lot of devices within sort of this uh, pandemic and this economic downturn. There's been that concern that some of this is just a pull forward uh, from sales that might have come down the road. There's also some concern that if the economic downturn continues apace, that, you know, folks aren't going to necessarily have several hundred dollars in disposable income to buy a new speaker system. Yeah, and, and I think that I, I can understand that perspective. Um, from everything we're seeing right now, we're seeing strength going forward as well. So um, we right now have seen, uh, we just introduced three new products. Um, we've seen demand really outstripping supply. And we don't see that changing based on both the demand we're seeing from customers right now, their intentions, and we're also seeing from, uh, from our retail partners as well in terms of what they're looking for. So we're using this quarter to get caught up on that demand. We'll obviously be monitoring it very closely um, as we look forward, but I think we've seen a tectonic shift in the way that consumers want to engage with our brand, um, and they're doing it, a large proportion are doing it uh, online, and they trust the brand and are purchasing you know, our new ARC, an $800 product, um, without even seeing it or without hearing it, which is pretty amazing. Patrick, there's also been some interest in the shifting supply chain. You've expanded into Malaysia. Are you doing it fast enough, though, to produce enough products to meet that demand? And how is the supply chain shift going? Yeah, so so we were diversifying our supply chain really to address the tariff issues that existed. I mean, we've had a plan for a long time to diversify, but um, we accelerated that given the tariffs. And I think the good news on that front that we let investors know yesterday 
is that we've actually been given an exemption for the tariffs that we have paid since they went into effect last September. Um, so that's actually going to be something that flows to our bottom line, which is great news. Um, and Malaysia uh, obviously was uh, impacted by the pandemic. And so uh, they shut down some of the operations there, which has slowed um, our push into Malaysia, but ultimately uh, we'll be there uh, and up and running fully by mid 2021. Our original goal had been later this year, uh, but we'll, we'll be in good shape by mid 2021 by the looks of it right now. Talk to us about the patent debate fight whatever you want to call it, with Google. The U.S. International Trade Commission is looking in it, into it at the moment. Are you confident that you can start to get royalties from Google in the back of this? We're very confident. Um, you know, we've just, last week, we signed our second agreement with uh, a competitor that uh, is now paying us a royalty. Um, we've had, we're two for two on that front. Google is our third. Uh, and we're very confident in terms of where we stand. And we're very pleased that uh, that trial is just around the corner. So we'll see that in February. So we're feeling good about that. Um, and look, we're trying to stand up for all small, innovative entrepreneurial companies that exist in the face of um, you know companies that are willing to try and uh, efficiently infringe on others' inventions and intellectual property. So we feel uh, it's the right thing to do for uh, our people that invented this, all of us, uh, and for our investors. Yeah, uh, that's a big issue there. I, I am curious, though, what the future holds. I mean, you guys were pretty early to sort of this home connected speaker market, and you really grabbed a lot of share of that. I compliment you on the product placement uh, right there uh, over your shoulder there. But <laughs> is this always going to be just a home product? Are there plans to maybe do something beyond the home, whether it's portability or autos? What? Yeah, so we there's a couple of different things there. I mean, you've seen that we've uh, expanded uh, a partnership with IKEA as well. So we've collaborated with them on new products that take us into new price points, new countries, new form factors. Um, we recently brought out the Move uh, that you see here, which does uh, allow you to go outside, right? And it's our first product that allows you to leave the home uh, and is portable. And so you can imagine, we see a ton of opportunity long-term in all the categories of audio. Um, and we think we have a unique perspective to play as really the leader in you know, cloud-driven audio uh, and the system that we built. A lot of the competitors in the space are facing issues about data privacy. If they're listening in on some of the conversations, how are you dealing with data privacy concerns? Yeah, we, um, you know, we've been out front in terms of our privacy policy um, that we've published for a long time. I think we have some of the most uh, probably sensitive and valuable homes in the world that are Sonos customers. So we take this deadly seriously. We acquired uh, a company, a voice technology company last year, uh, or actually earlier this year, um, which is very focused on privacy. We think there is more work to be done in that space and we think we have a unique uh, perspective on that. And so I'd say stay tuned uh, for a little more on what we're doing on that front in the future. You know success when you see it or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
Then I had a wide-ranging conversation with Mark Urquhart, who helps manage Bailey Gifford's long-term global growth equity fund, which has beaten 99% of its peers in three-year annual returns and is currently up 37% year-to-date. Mark has two decades of experience investing in China and told me why he thinks the rise of nationalism in China will ultimately do more harm to American companies than Chinese ones. He spoke ahead of the White House's announcement that it was expanding its TikTok ban to include WeChat, the messaging app owned by Tencent, one of the fund's biggest bets. I started by asking about the fund's winning formula and if their picks, Netflix, Amazon and Tencent for example, well, if they work so well right now, will they remain the picks for the future? Yeah, well, thank you for that kind introduction. Um, our DNA in, in looking for growth investments is to find disruptive companies, companies that have longevity of growth. You're absolutely right that the pandemic and its consequences has accelerated some of that growth. So what we're trying to do at the moment is to really disaggregate two categories. I, I think there are those who have had a, a sudden burst of demand and, and things have been drawn forward. Then there are companies for whom this episode, I, I think, will mark fundamental change. And, and by that, I mean behavioral changes in the way we as consumers, we as enterprises interact. So an example of that would, would be Peloton, where the critique after the IPO as well, it's, it's a very niche New York, Edinburgh, London product, and, and it, it won't go to the masses. People like going to gyms, training at home, doesn't work. That's been turned on its head. Um, gyms are now not open in many countries. Um, they're, they're hard to socially distance, the hygiene factors, and actually the, the luxury of training with high quality kits at home. So that sort of, of company um, probably has a, a much better outlook um, coming out of the pandemic. My job as a long-term investor is, is not to think what is the demand pattern in quarter three 2020, it's to try to visualize the future in 2025, 2030. I would say that on the whole, we, we remain happy with the portfolio and you know, many of those have, have been accelerated, but we think the opportunity sets are larger than they were at the start of 2020. But of course, part of your process as an investor is going through each individual name and assessing those. So, so there are some companies where I would agree with you that, that things have been full, pulled forward and the share price more, more reflects that now. Talk about that process, that process of individual names, because you don't look at sectors and goodness knows you don't like the so-called sector of technology in terms of a turn of phrase. Yes, I, I think the word technology is, is so overused that it's almost it's almost empty now and vacuous and, and let me explain that so I, I started investment in 1996 and I, I was the young guy on the team so of course I was the technology analyst because young people understand technology and then um, I looked at hardware IBM I looked at software um, Microsoft and, and you know you looked at services and companies made their revenues from selling goods and services as, as traditionally they do in, in every sector you fast forward to today and, and the word technology is used so ubiquitously, you know, so travel companies, Expedia, um, Booking.com, Ctrip, they're seen as technology companies. They're not, they're, they're travel agents. Peloton is a, is a, is a leisure company um, and you can go through Netflix is a, is a media company. They, they live or die on how much revenue they, they take from those areas. So we think that sectoral analysis is actually imposes quite quite large constraints on your imagination and um, 
the global economy is so fluid and, and, and the companies that we're able to invest in are so fluid that actually trying to be very bottom up and assessing each company on its own merits and its opportunity set, we think is, is one of the secrets of success and is, is, is a, a way to try to avoid some of the behavioral issues which um, affect us all as trying to invest in markets and predicting the future. Talking about that global economy that is so fluid, it's also a global economy that is being put to the test in terms of the sheer word globalization, the fact that we have geopolitics, geopolitics at play at the moment between China and the United States, and that affects some of the companies that you're in, like Tencent, like the future of Zoom, which is currently trying to distance itself potentially from the Chinese government within this tussle that goes on. How do you see the geopolitical landscape at the moment and how it affects your desire to invest in countries such as China? Yeah, it's a fundamental question that I think we're all grappling with it. It's not a new issue. You know, we've, we've been investing in China for, for two decades and, and you know, this, this issue raises its head depending on, on the politics of the day, but it is amplified at the moment by the pandemic. You're, you're definitely right. And the rise of nationalism and, and actually even within countries, the rise of sort of statism or, or provincialism, if you like, of closing of borders is, is, is very unusual. Um, my personal view is, is that much of this is echoing a, a very long-term move. I, I think the 20th century um, and the 21st century will look quite different in terms of the, the economic epicenters. Um, I think the tectonic shape, shifts that are going on are moving east. That's very hard to cope with. Um, that's where a lot of the angst in, in Anglo-Saxon countries comes from because they're losing market share, they're, they're losing... Um, competitive edge. So I, I think it's much more of a concern actually in the New Yorks and in the Londons of the world than it is in the Beijings and Shanghais that when one travels there and goes there um, they don't need the markets of, of Great Britain or, or the United States to succeed. They've got very huge opportunities on their own doorstep both domestically obviously but also more widely in Southeast Asia. So I do think that some of it echoes the, the sort of inevitable ebbs and flows of, of, of global economic wealth. My job as a global investor is, is to try to be immune to that and, and to follow where those opportunities are. So that's why China is, is so attractive to us. The, the growth opportunities which one sees there um, are really very hard to replicate in, in other geographies. So do you see a bifurcated world? Do you see two technology systems almost? One in the US where they now no longer want Chinese winners in the same way that China had already blocked the US winners apart from Microsoft from staking a claim and a purpose within their country too. I, I think that that definitely feels it, the, the way that, that it, it could turn out. Um, I think there is a large dose of obviously we are in an election year as, as your viewers of course will know and are thinking about all the time so it's, some of this is, is definitely rhetorical how much of it can actually be enforceable you know there, as far as I know there is no legislation um, on the book at the moment that's not to, to say that it, it, it can't be for instance for the US Treasury to take a, a share of the a, a sale of TikTok um, but it, it, it does feel as if those two competing systems are there um, that's good news in, in many ways because it eliminates the, the competitive environment of, of them both going hammer and tongs at each other. So in the same way that, that Amazon dipped its toe into China and, and really quite quickly realized it wasn't going to be able to compete with, with Jack Ma and Alibaba um, and it could concentrate on its strengths. I, I think we could see those, those sort of dual 
um, technology strands, as you say, dominating their, their existing areas. But like the, the, the caveat to that would be that I think the Asian companies have by far the most attractive near um, market. How are you therefore seeing the potential to invest and get access to assessing the investment opportunities in China. We can't travel at the moment. You can't go and put your own boots on the ground. How are you looking at seeing data in that part of the world? How are you seeing data in the US when you sit in Edinburgh as well? Yeah, um, we we were lucky to open a research office in Shanghai last year, the tail end of last year, and and, and that had been long in the the planning. So that's very useful having investment researchers on the ground there. Um, it, It allows us they're, they're pretty free to travel around to meet management teams um, and, and, and to provide the updates. And, and I think that's really important at, at the moment. You know, Bloomberg do a very good job of, of providing us neutral information, but it's, it can be extremely hard to get data that doesn't have a, an angle. Um, you know, there, there's lots of, of, of um, journalists who do have a, an axe to grind on, on, on both sides um, of the Atlantic. Speaking to management, that, that's always been our bread and butter. So, so the use of technology has been huge. Um, yes, I've been working from home for the last five months, but I, I've probably spent more time speaking to management during that period than, than I had um, in, in the previous six months or so. And in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's very easy actually to jump on a Zoom call just as we're doing today to discuss these things. Um, so it's for us very much trying to go to the companies themselves to find out what is actually happening and how they're thinking about the next five or 10 years. You know, that, that long-term perspective is vital to us. It's so easy to get drawn into the short term, what's happening to stock prices, what's happening to, to quarterly earnings. But actually, as, you know, as, as I said, for me, it's about trying to look out five and 10 years and really thinking how the world shapes then and, and how it looks in, over that sort of time frame. So having, having that sort of feet on the street in, in China has, has been extremely useful. You talk of Zoom and of course that's an investment you have. How have the management responded to the sudden surge of demand? Have you seen businesses respond to things that they couldn't possibly have planned for and be able to meet that level of demand but still keep an eye on the future? Yeah, um, we, 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 we got lucky in Zoom, I will say that. We didn't predict the pandemic when buying it um, in, in the early part of this year. It was much more of an environmental angle that we were taking, that, that you know, the, 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 the sort of rise of, of um, people thinking about their, their global travel before the pandemic, which will definitely be exacerbated. I think Zoom and it, it's the company we're still getting to know. I, I think they've, they've reacted incredibly well. It, it, um, Growth investing and, and, and managing a company that is growing that rapidly is a really hard task and, and, and they've managed it extremely well. Um, what's been interesting to us and one of the features we always try to look for in companies are, are what, what is the culture of the company? It's such an intangible concept, but I, I think it's really important in terms of delivering long-term returns. And what's really impressed me with my interactions with the CEO there or how thoughtful they are, it'd be very easy for them to be extremely happy with themselves and extremely almost overconfident. But actually, unprompted in our most recent conversation, and the thing which Eric is most concerned about was that they took their eye off the ball in terms of security when they were moving into education. Um, you know, we, we, you, you'll have reported on those stories and, and that was a big issue. And he was extremely disappointed that they hadn't organizationally thought about that because it's a very different use case to, to the enterprise cases which they'd had up to then. So 
I took a lot of sucker from that, that, that they're reacting and they're thoughtful. They're clearly extremely um, delighted that the number of use cases um, has, has multiplied as it has in, in, in the last six months. They also think that we're only just getting going. You know, there are many, many more things which they're able to do with the technology. And I, I think that's, that's what excites us as shareholders looking forward. Are the CEOs aligned in your way of thinking about how geopolitics plays out as well and this potential for winning and winning big in the West for perhaps not being able to straddle East and West? I think that would vary. You know, I think that's for the CEOs themselves to, to, to comment on it. it my, my observation would be it varies from, from company to company. You know, there, there's, there's definitely um, some companies who still have global aspirations and, and you know, quite rightly so, because some of the, the, the products which they, they, they offer and, and the, the technologies have global appeal. You know, if, if the last 20 years of, of, of um, stock market observation have taught me anything, it, it's that ability and to take something global. You mentioned Netflix earlier. I, I think Netflix is, is one of the most remarkable companies or one of the most remarkable days in my investment career was when they announced that they were going overseas in, in a big way. They'd been testing the water in, in Europe in a couple of countries. I'll get the numbers wrong, but it was something like 138 countries that they turned on overnight. Mm. Um, if Walmart can't do that, you know, a, a sort of bricks and mortar, an airline can't do that. Companies that have to put physical assets there. So... So there is, I think we've got to be careful with, with the rise of, of, of sort of nationalism and, and the China-US rhetoric. Um, there are companies that still have profound global opportunities and, and, and we'd, we'd want CEOs to, to, to sort of still be addressing that. It's a China-UK issue as well, though. How do you see where you sit in Edinburgh at the, as well, being able to get a distance from the countries that think they are the epicenter of the world? And be able to see how perhaps geopolitics unravels not just between US and China but elsewhere as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the, the situation in, in Hong Kong has definitely created a far more headlines. I mean, my own observation of this is is, is, is the days of Britain having having real global import are, are pretty long gone. Um, you know, in, in terms of, of and, 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 and the portfolios I'm involved with at the moment, we, we don't actually own any British companies, you know, and, and, and not to say there aren't, there aren't several that are interesting to, to colleagues elsewhere at, at Bailey Gifford. Um, but I, I, I don't think China are, are really that concerned about, about, you know, what British politicians are, are thinking or, or saying, it, it, and, and, and certainly Chinese companies um, you know, we, we need them far more than they need us, would be my simple observation. And what about keeping that distance in terms of also emotionally speaking? You talk about how hard it is for CEOs to think for the five, the 10 years and not get caught up in the moment in terms of a stock price rally. It's hard for the investor as well to keep their head when they're seeing valuations skyrocket and know when the right time is to come out or indeed when something is perhaps not vindicated how do you do that how do you maintain your sense of calm yeah i, I think experience definitely helps so I, i've been in this 24 years now and I've, I've lived through you know previous market market sort of crises and dislocations and, and periods of, of volatility i think it's important to say that in many cases valuations are, are only really keeping up with growth you know so, so we are seeing companies with with astonishing um, both top line and, and earnings numbers, you know, th things which early in my career would have been really unthinkable, you know, companies that can sustain growth at, at 
35, 40, 45%. And, and the, the power of compound growth is often forgotten. The market gets so myopic on, on the individual quarter or the individual earnings release that, that actually if you sit back, those can, can create huge um, revenue streams. And, and, and that's ultimately what drives with, with profitable growth the, the share prices over long periods of time. We think being in Edinburgh is, is an advantage. You know, where there's not many global multinational companies based up here. It's, it, you, you can, you can um, have some distance from that and, and the ability to, to think and, and, and to, to almost isolate yourself from some of the, the madding noise that, that, that is part of markets. It is part of that heartbeat. We also think having a consistent process is really important. So asking the same questions again and again of companies. Like? Um, of, of what, what does your top line look like over the next five or 10 years? What, what do you contribute to society? What's the culture of your business? What, what's the direction of, of returns here? What doesn't the market understand? Those are the sorts of questions that we go through. They're quite social questions in a way. What do you contribute to society, the culture? Do you feel that that a part of ESG is just S is just a necessary part of investing? I think it could be one of the defining strands of, of, of the next 10 years. It's, it's, it's been a huge change over the course of my career that when I started, ESG was seen as a, a bit of an add on. There was definitely seen as a trade off that a, a company which observed you know, good social behavior wouldn't be as profitable. So it was putting extra costs in. I think that's turned on its head. I, I think consumers now look for an incredible um, amount of social responsibility from enterprises. And I think that's a, that's a really good thing there. There's no real hiding place, but I think importantly, it can now be an extremely powerful competitive advantage, companies doing the right thing. And if, if you think of, of what we're trying to do is invest in companies for five, 10, and, and hopefully more years than that, they have to be responsible citizens and um, to last that long, to keep customers coming back, to, to keep their reputation. So I think it's absolutely intrinsic to long-term investing that you look for, for businesses um, which do take that attitude and, and more importantly, which have you know, the, the culture point, have employees, have leaders, have CEOs um, who are driven not by their own compensation, but are driven by, by what they can do and, and how they can help society. So yes, they are. You're, you're right. They're, they're qualitative questions, but I, I think they're far more important than the numbers which, which you and other providers so helpfully provide me as an investor. They're, they're a commodity, really, you know, the, 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 the revenues and the earnings, the, the forecasts, etc. For me, the art of investment, and I, I do say the word art, um, very specifically, I, I think it is more of that than a science. And, and, and to me, that's, that's um, perhaps one thing that Billy Gifford has, has managed to do well. So how, talk us about the art of understanding Jeff Bezos, of understanding what Amazon can contribute to society when everyone is so enraptured by just how much wealth he has or by how he's going to respond to regulators on Capitol Hill. But how do you see he's evolved the business over, I think it's about 15 years that you've held Amazon, how you think that he's managed to answer society's needs? Well, I, again, he, he'd be in a far better place to answer, but my, my modest view would, would be they've done a couple of, of fundamental things that, that Amazon has absolutely um, driven down the cost of, of many items and, 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 and made it much more easy for people um, to, to trade. You know, so so I, I think that is a, a very good thing for society. You know, you, know, you, you can 
take your view, but I think the, the last thing that Amazon can be accused of is price gouging. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's in a, a very, very competitive industry. It's also relentlessly invested in, in new areas. Um, you know, so it's cloud infrastructure. Um, AWS has got a lot more coverage in, in the last few years as they, as they themselves have been more public about that. Um, but that, I, I think, is, is a, a, a substantial contribution to society. It also shows up su superbly well in, in any survey of, of places to work. It, it's very easy to criticise large companies. And it's, a, it's part of what we do as a society. You know, we go through these phases of it was big oil and then it was obviously in the financial crisis, big banks, big pharma had its day, big tech is, is now sort of in the firing lines. So we don't like companies getting getting too large and, and quite rightly so because history is, is is dotted with companies which abuse their market power and, and, and there should be trade-offs and there should be um, regulation but it's quite hard to see quite how one would regulate Amazon. Do, do you tell them to put their prices up? Do you tell them to to slow their delivery down to make it easier for competition? Do you, you know, it, it's actually a a problem for regulators because largely what they're doing is, is delighting their customers on a daily basis. Do you worry about the regulatory risk more broadly that it will end up seeing laws imposed that don't fit, that don't work, and that do disrupt the the business model? Absolutely. You know, I, I think a, a threat to, to any portfolio and, and, and ours included in that is, is clumsy regulation. Um, you know, precisely for those reasons that, that I've spoken about, that, that, that at times um, politicians, regulators feel they have to do something. Um, and there's almost an irrational sort of attraction to regulating big companies, um, despite the, the, the fact that they, they might be helping many, many members of society. So I, I, I do think, you know, the, the, the long tail outcomes of, of potential breakup or potential, you know, pe people have talked of sales taxes you know, rather than, than profit taxes to try to capture that. It, it is a concern, um, but actually they're very hard to implement because something like that would probably entrench its competitive position because it would make it even harder for competitors, smaller competitors who have to pay a sales tax to actually gain any market share. So it's, 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 I think it's a sort of inevitable consequence of size and dominance and, and people want to hold large companies um, under the microscope. And I, I don't think that is a, a bad thing per se. Um, but I, I do think that some of the, the analysis can get quite clouded that, that it's, you've, you've actually got to think, well, what are these large companies doing that is so um, disruptive, sorry, or, or so, so, negative for society it's quite hard as a politician to stand up and say this this large company is doing very well for society talk to us about therefore what becomes the moment where you feel it's time to get out of an amazon for example how do you hold yourself to account to that when you can still see such growth yeah that's where one has to go back to the process and and, and you, know, you asked earlier about the behavioral elements and, and avoiding falling in love with stocks is is, is exactly that so that for us would, would be, there are probably three factors, a, 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 a real slowdown in top line growth. Now, Amazon is actually at the other end of that at the moment because it's, it's accelerated through, through the pandemic to around about a 40% run rate. And, but if we saw a company, and, and we've had several holdings in the past um, where, where the top line growth has slowed substantially. The second is, is the old chestnut of, of, of competitive environment you know if, if a new competitor comes along and does what you are doing better 
that is a, a, a great challenge to any company and, and, and stock market history is obviously full of, of um, companies reinventing themselves and, and challenging others and, and doing things better. So you have to be awake to that. And then the third and, and tied into some of the, the earlier comments on, on, on culture and management are, are large changes um, in, in company management. You know, so if, if some of the CEOs who, who we've put so much truck in and, and we think are there for the long term, if they walk away from those businesses, that, that's a massive signal and, and, and one that, that we should be really challenging ourselves. It's far too easy to say, oh, well, X will do a good job, but, but if they haven't been there, they're not the founder, they're not the, you know, they're, they're not the, the person who is the heartbeat of that company, um, that's, a, that's a massive change in the investment case. Mark, get us excited, therefore, for a post-COVID world. We all can't wait. But what does that mean for your investment? And what does it mean in terms of what you're looking for right now? Where are the opportunities amid this disruption? I personally think it's a fantastic time to be a, a growth investor at the moment because every industry is up for grabs. So there, there is disruption absolutely everywhere that one looks and, and in, in places which, which one perhaps thought were sacrosanct before this. So, so that's in, in, in the way we work. Um, you know, the, the very essence of, of the sort of office job, of, of course, people will return in, in, in some form, but I, I don't think it will be in a, in a pre-COVID way. I think there'll be far more flexibility that then has huge implications in terms of the home office, in terms of cloud infrastructure, in terms of, of, of cloud software businesses, and, and obviously negative consequences in terms of commuting, in terms of, of central office space, etc. So there, there will be winners and losers. I think that the, the way we entertain ourselves is, is fundamentally changed. You know, so you you talked about Netflix earlier. Um, you know, Disney is about to, to premiere Mulan, much to the, the chagrin of, of cinemas around the world. Um, but, but you know that that is, is again um, you know a, a massive change in, in terms of, of how we we use some of our downtime. Um, I think the the fitness markets, the the, the pelotons of the world are are. You know, how, how that plays out over the next five or 10 years, I, I think well, it could be that gyms are quite anachronistic. You know, the idea of, of people traveling several miles to get to a gym to, to work out with strangers and then to share showers with them, um, rather than doing that in, in your own home at, at the time that you choose. And, and then you can go to your own shower is, is, you know, is, is quite a challenge. And I think one goes through these numbers, I think the future of food, you know, food delivery, etc., cetera, and, and, and the way that we... We consume that. So I, I, I think that the, the opportunity set is, is probably as bright as it has been um, in, in my 20 years plus of, of being a growth investor. And it, it's caused by, by that absolute sort of moment of, of everyone is examining how they do things and, and how they interact. And, and, and that's fantastic for disruptive technologies and, and disruptive companies. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5pm on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5pm streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Just 
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.